you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 to 10, page 976 of the Red Bibles in the pews. While you turn there, I'll tell you a story. In July of 1961, the Green Bay Packers football team uh, was gathering for the first day of training camp. And their previous season had ended, unfortunately, and prematurely when they had lost a a playoff game they didn't expect to lose, giving up a lead in the fourth quarter. And these 38 professional athletes who were at the very, very top of their game, ready to take it over the top to the next level, were eager to find out what their legendary coach, Vince Lombardi, would say to them. Lombardi walks out on the field. They're all listening. He holds up a football. He says, gentlemen, This is a football. And then for the rest of the preseason, he proceeded to take them back to the absolute basics of tackling, of blocking, of everything else to say, if you want to go to the next level, you need to, we need to master the basics that everyone else is taking for granted. In a way, Paul is doing this here with the Ephesians. He spends these three chapters laying out the absolute basics and says, gentle persons, I guess, this is the gospel. This is the gospel, and he lays this foundation and says, this is what you absolutely have to understand before all the rest of what I'll tell you about how we live this thing out. Today's passage is going back to the fundamentals, simple enough for a child to understand and yet profound enough to reward a lifetime of study and of application. As Tim Keller used to be fond of saying, he would say the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. And that is what we see here, Paul encapsulating the gospel. If we want to discover hope for life, we need to master Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. If we want to advance in our faith, we need to master Ephesians 2. If we want to stop living out of a sense of painful duty and move toward passionate delight in the service of God, we need to understand what we have here in Ephesians 2 to 10. So let's pray together that God would do that, and then we will read this passage and move through it. God, we are so eager to move to the advanced things beyond the basics, and yet there's such riches, untold, immeasurable riches, the basics of the gospel. And I pray, God, as we seek to lay hold of these truths, that you would help us to to do so afresh. I pray if there are some here who need to fundamentally understand their, their status with respect to you, that you would, you would make that clear in these verses. I pray that all of us uh, who are walking with you would respond with an overflow of joy, that we would not uh, hold works and obedience up to you as some kind of transaction where we expect to get something in return, but we would uh, rejoice that salvation is a free gift, not a result of our works, so that no one can boast, that our, that our obedience and service would come and flow naturally out of joy um, in what you've done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2. Like the passages we've already looked at from chapter 1, this is another one of Paul's famous run-on sentences, uh, but you can bring it all together and just look at the main subject and verb and boil it down to the basics, which is this. God made us alive in Christ. That's the fundamental thing that's happening here. We see it right in the center of these verses. God made us alive in Christ. If we expand that just a little, we can see the outline and the flow of the passage. In the first three verses, we see that we were dead in sin. That's the first thing. Second, we see that God made us alive together in Christ. That's verses four through seven, roughly. And then in verses eight to 10, we see that we are saved by grace through faith for good works. Death to life for a purpose. It's Ephesians 2. First, dead in sin. Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What's Paul describing here? Well, he's saying something very unflattering, which is that the spiritual status of everyone outside of Christ is, is spiritual death. This phrase, dead in trespasses, the, the word trespasses is the image of crossing a boundary, crossing a boundary from, from a blessed place, a place of life outside of that. Uh, imagine a goldfish swimming inside a fishbowl, and the bowl is kind of the boundary of this, of this fish's world, and he looks outside and thinks, okay, my master is feeding me and uh, gave me this place, but it looks so exciting out there, and I'm stuck in here. And so the fish backs all the way back against one wall and then swims as fast as it possibly can and leaps over the rim, trespasses the boundary, if you will, and for a few exhilarating moments thinks, I'm free, and then hits the ground and its life ebbs away. Something, some kind of image like that, the boundary is for its protection. The boundary is for the fish's protection, and inside that boundary of the, of the bull is blessing and life for that creature. That's how God's ways are, and yet we all trespass and sin in our thoughts and our words and our actions and step outside of that place that God has prescribed for us. Uh, we're made for freedom, to live in freedom, but not absolute freedom in the same way that God has. That was the lie in the garden that you could be like God. It gets even worse in verses 2 and 3. Paul follows the other, many of the other New Testament writers who all point out that there's these three enslaving powers that tra trap all of humanity in sin and death, and those are the world, the flesh, 
and the devil, as, as John famously said. So we see that chapter, beginning in verse 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, there's the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, there's the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, so the world, the flesh, and the devil, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And so we see that the world's script for what the good life is combines with spiritual forces that act on us and then our own will that's bent towards selfishness, that's bent towards sin, that's bent away from God's rule. All those things taken together point to this comprehensive enslavement and entrapment in sin and in death. We're not just dead in sin. We're not just doubly dead in sin. We're triply dead in sin. We're triply trapped in sin. And Paul is laying out a very, very dire scenario here. And if we read closely, we see that this affects both religious and irreligious people. It's subtle, but in these verses, Paul switches from you in verse 1 to we. And he's talking about you Gentiles and we uh, Jews, all of us dead in all of us were in this situation, he says. It affects everyone. What's the result? Verse 3 continues, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. To be in Adam is to be born into a fallen state. And the big point of verses 1 to 3 is that by nature, meaning in ourselves, in Adam, the way that we come into this world and the way we operate naturally, in this world outside of Christ, by nature we had no ability to please God, no ability to respond to God, no ability to choose God. Dead people don't choose. There's no responsiveness there. That's the image. Like many religious people sort of wrongly think that sin makes them spiritually sick and they need a little medicine or help from God to get back on track. The mentality is sort of like Billy Crystal talks about in The Princess Bride. Uh, he says, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead, right? Well, he says that optimistically, but this passage is saying, no, there's no mostly dead, it's all dead. All dead. You are dead, fully dead, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is a football. This is the bad news. This is the, the bad news of, that then is met with the good news of the gospel. So that's verses one to three. And that passage from Ezekiel 37 that Jake read earlier describes that situation exactly. You have these dry bones. Uh, and God asks if they can live. Ezekiel doesn't say, well, they're, they're good bones. Or they're, they were religious bones. No. He says, God, only you, you know. It takes God's spirit to transform them. Even, even when they, everything's clicked together, it still takes God's spirit to transform them from the appearance of life to actual life, to animate them with the, with the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we see in verses 2 to 4. We see then the move from death to life. So in ver God made us alive in Christ. And that the darkness, the darkness is so dark, makes this the brightness of the good news all the brighter that we see in verse 4, that God made us alive in Christ. We were dead in our sin, but God made us alive in Christ. This phrase, but God, has to be one of the most beautiful phrases in all of the scriptures. And if you want a nice Bible study to do with someone sometime, go look up all the occurrences of that and look at them and see, see what happens in all of those passages. It's a wonderful 
study. We don't have time to do it tonight, but we could say just a few. We see this one here. You were dead in your trespasses, but God, in mercy and love, made you alive in Christ. We came real close to one this morning. It's in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, speaking to his brother, says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to save the lives of many, but God. Likewise, Psalm 73 says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my strength and portion forever. We may fail, our hold on God may fail, his hold on us cannot, but God. Paul knew all about this transformation wrought by, by God. He knew about it experientially in his own life, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. He grew up as a religious Jew. He was raised as a Pharisee in the strictest sect uh, of Judaism in his day. And this sense of superiority and of self-righteousness had led him into what we could describe as religious terrorism. He was killing those who disagreed with him. He was overseeing the destruction and the persecution of the Christian church. But God reached out to him in that place. You can read about it in Acts. And God called him and God saved him and God transformed his life. And then God sent him as a missionary to the Gentiles who were some of the very people that he felt so superior to in the first place. But God means that God can transform uptight religious hypocrites into gracious, humble people who can't look down on others because we realize the basic truth that we all were equally dead in our sins and trespasses. And that if God has done something in us, it's to the praise of his glory, not to the praise of our own cleverness or abilities. But God also applies to irreligious people. There's a famous uh, story of uh, atheist Lee Strobel who came to faith while doing uh, research to sort of disprove and to mock Christianity. God loves this kind of thing. He's all about transformation from death to life. He's all about transformation and bringing new life and new creation. So how does that actually work when we're made alive together in Christ? We see in verses 5 and 6 that clarify that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This is by the theological categories for this are regeneration and faith. We're dead. We're unable to see. We're unable to respond. We are unable to choose. But God makes us alive. And so regeneration is is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit that brings spiritual life, that opens the eyes of the heart, that gives life spiritually. And Jesus confirms this in John chapter 6. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And then later says, No one can come to me unless, he tries really hard to find me? No. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And so it's a gift of God we see all around. So first, God makes us alive together with Jesus by his spirit. And then the first act with our new spiritual eyes, with our new spiritual breath, with our new spiritual life is to look up and say, oh, it was you. And he says, follow me and we follow him. And so that's the response of faith that can come from a regenerated heart. I just have this picture of like ducklings that imprint on their mother and follow around the first thing they they see, but I don't know if that, (laughs) forget it, I don't know if that (laughs) makes sense. We are made alive by the Holy Spirit. We look up and we see who did that. And Jesus says, follow me, we follow him. 
Regeneration and faith are just two sides of the same coin. One wouldn't happen without the other, but there is a logical order that we see here, which is that we have to be raised to life by God from death and sin, and then there's the response of faith. And where our master has gone, we will follow. We saw, was it last week in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, how God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Now we see the exact echo of that. It says, where your master goes, guess what? You're going to, you are raised, and you're raised with him, and you are seated with him. Present tense, there's some sense that this is already happening, and there's some, some sense in which it will fully happen one day. We're raised in him. For what purpose? We see in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this echoes chapter 1's refrain, to the praise of his glory. He says it's going to take all of eternity for you to realize and to see and to praise the riches, the measureless riches of God's kindness towards you. I don't even know what to say about that. It's really remarkable to think that God's kindness towards you and his grace toward you will take all of eternity to, to probe and to understand. Amazing. So we, are, we, are, we go from death to life, and then it, it is we are saved by faith alone and for good works. And we see that in verses 8 to 10. Verses 8 and 9 come back from these immeasurable riches in heaven, and they come back to the core of God's kindness. And this is Paul again holding up the truth and saying, this is a football. This is the gospel. These are the basics that you need to know in order to move forward. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Can I suggest if, if you haven't memorized those two verses that it would be a wonderful exercise. It's not a, not a command, but a, a, an encouragement that you'll be blessed uh, throughout your life to, to know and remember these things. This is the wonderful truth at the heart of the Reformation, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then verse 10 adds, we're not saved by faith alone, uh, that while we are saved by faith alone, our faith isn't meant to remain alone, but to produce the fruit of good works. So let's go through these bit by bit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Dead in sin, we deserved it, but instead we get grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. We get immeasurable kindness. We get God's grace. So what is the relationship between grace and faith? I've heard it illustrated as this. We picture grace like life-giving water that flows down from God and gives life to all that it, that it touches. Um, just actually, Todd said that this morning in his prayer. And then faith is pictured as the channel through which these waters of grace flow. And so the waters of grace, God carves out a channel of faith into the bedrock of our hearts. And, and uh, as we pray, the, the, we, the gates are open and these this waters flow through the channel of faith down to the place of our deepest needs. Sometimes people read this, that we're saved through faith, and think, great, 
Faith is the work that I contribute to my salvation. It's just this partnership between me and God, 50-50, No. Paul knew this mistake might happen. Let's ask Paul. Paul, am I contributing something to my salvation? Verse 8. This is not your own doing. Wait, but Paul, are my good works a gift that I offer to God? No, salvation is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. As one preacher said, uh, salvation is a gift you receive, not a paycheck you earn. That's great news, by the way. Uh, Pastor Brian Chappell talks about one reason why. He says, if our works do not cause God's love, then our weaknesses do not jeopardize it. Our works do not cause God's love, therefore our weaknesses do not jeopardize God's love toward us. That is a wonderful thing. And he goes on to say, in fact, grace has already granted and secured all the love there is to have from God. We'll just bask in that for a moment. I'm actually basking that all week. Grace has secured all the love there is to have from God for you. That's God's amazing, life-changing grace. This is a football. By grace, you've been saved through faith. If we can absorb that reality, we'll realize that we don't have to prove our worth to anyone this week because God himself is smiling at you in Christ. Absorb that, you'll realize you can stop trying to justify yourself by comparing yourself with other people. That there's no superior and inferior. We're all children of God reconciled in Christ to one another and to him. No matter the role that he assigns us in this life. Absorb that salvation is a gift you receive, not a paycheck you earn, and you'll, you'll realize the truth of what theologian John Murray once wrote when he said, obedience is not a means of buying blessings from a stingy God. Yes, that's so significant. Obedience is not the means of buying blessings from a stingy God. So often we approach God like that. That needs, I'm embarrassed to say, sometimes I find my, my, that in my own mindset. Uh, it's easy to feel angry at God and think, God, I'm trying to serve you. I've been praying. I'm obeying you. I'm doing all these things for you. And life isn't going the way that I want it to. I deserve better, right? What's, what's the narrative in our hearts in, the, in that moment when we, when we approach God like that? It's not that we've been saved by grace through faith and therefore we owe God a debt of praise. Instead, it's, I've been a good boy, and God owes me a treat. <laughs> it's not, not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that's not how we relate to God. It's all of grace. In those moments, there's an unwillingness to believe that the God who rescued me and you, the God who saved us, the God who called us to immeasurable riches in Christ also knows what's best for us. So we need to repent of that. It's wild to take God's free gift and say, thanks for that. I'd also like to earn it so I can hold it over you and get what I want. No. But here's the, the magnitude of the grace of God is he takes people like me and like you who do that all the time and he says, I saved you by grace. Now I'd like to include you in my plan and I'd like you to be part of the work that I have in the world. 
And because I've done it all on your behalf, I have good works for you to do, not to earn anything, but to involve you in my world. And so that's the point of verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We should walk in them. If you remember verse 1, we were walking in something else, other works, worldly works, and now walk in them forms this inclusio, these brackets that begin and end the passage, very clearly marking it as one segment of thought. Walk in them begins it, walk in them ends it. We began as the walking dead, as slaves to sin, who walked in the ways of the world. And now he says, uh, you are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters of the living God. You're walking, you're no longer dead, but you're alive. No longer doing whatever comes into your mind or your body, but doing the good works that God prepared for you before you were even born. What good works? There's too many, too many to name, so many opportunities, but Jesus boiled them down to loving God and loving others. We're saved to praise his glory. We can do that in worship. We can do that with thankfulness throughout the week. We can praise him by treasuring him, by longing to be with him, by knowing and believing with the psalmist, this God, his ways are perfect. The, the reformers made clear, <clears throat> and many of you will know, that part of the way that we love and serve others, excuse me, Excuse me. Part of the way that we love and serve others is certainly through our vocations and the varied callings that we have, whether that is caring for children at home, whether that is the work that you do, um, whether it's paid work or unpaid work, the work that we do day to day is a big part of that. And Luther has this famous exposition of part of how we, how we love and serve our neighbor uh, is, is that people's prayers for their daily bread are answered through the farmer and through the baker, and through the delivery man who delivers the bread, and through, in our day, through the person who does the checkout, or the person who makes the robots that do the checkout, uh, through all these different means, those who maintain the roads, those who design them, those who build them, all of us have a role to play in loving, serving neighbor through good works that can include these daily, these daily things, as well as acts of obedience to the Lord, motivated by an overflow of grace. Often I'll come home, and one of my lovely kids will run up and say, Daddy, I drew you this. You know, and I, that's what I picture here with the, these good works motivated. I say, Father, I made you this. Uh, overflow of joy in a good father. We'll unpack that more in weeks to come, but we can close with this basic thought. Lombardi said this is a football. <laughs> Paul is saying, this is the gospel. This is the core of what we believe. We're dead in our sins, unable to respond to God, unable to choose. But God, rich in mercy, because of his love for us, made us alive together in Christ. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet that faith does not remain alone. But we move into producing works, uh, not to save us, but in response to the free grace that we received from God. And our inability to do that perfectly doesn't endanger God's love for us. It just magnifies God's love and grace for us. 
And that's a grace and kindness we will need all of eternity to grasp. But yet, because of what he's done, we have it. Let's pray. Father, these are wonderful truths. These are deep and profound truths. They're more than I can articulate. They're more than any of us can understand. In fact, it's so clear from this passage that it will take not just a lifetime, but all of eternity to realize your kindness and the riches of your grace toward us that are shown to us in Christ. So we pray for a greater understanding of that now, a greater rejoicing in that in our own lives tonight, this week, as we go out from here. Father, I pray for anyone here who has not yet realized, that not yet received and rested and relied on Jesus Christ for new life, that are still, in a sense, dry bones or the spiritual corpse that's, that's described here. It's a, it's a difficult reality. Yet I pray that anyone in that place would receive spiritual sight and life from your Holy Spirit right now, that they would despair of their own ability to fix the problem. Then they would turn to you and see your ability. Help them to turn, offer, their, offer you their need, and receive your grace flowing down to give them life and forgiveness for disobedience and sin and failed attempts at self-justification. Please apply the perfection of Jesus' life and their account. Forgive them for his sake. Make them spiritually alive by the work of the Holy Spirit. God, for everyone here, help us rejoice in these fundamentals, appropriate them more and more. Not to move on from them, but to move on with them. Give us rest in the immeasurable inheritance that we have from you, not trying to earn wages, but receive your good gifts, which are so far in excess of anything we have earned for ourselves. May our good works overflow from a place of joy, and Holy Spirit-empowered service, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.